Welcome to Talk Design, the show where creatives have conversations. I'm Adrian Ramsey and I'm your host. Having lived a life of design myself, I wanted to share with you the creatives that inspire me and in turn may inspire you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy. Hi, I'm Adrian Ramsey and I'm your host on Talk Design. I started this podcast because I wanted to share the journey of design that I've had and that many others have had. And I find it inspirational talking to people globally about what makes design tick and what makes design create a better world for others. My journey has taken me from clothing globally, women's swimwear, performance sportswear, mountaineering, yachting, all these kind of genres where each place I would learn more and more about different specifics and how clothing can support those. Also, I've worked in innovation as a systematic innovation trainer and worked with the aerospace industry as well as the marketing industry and the design industry. And all my years of design, still my favorite is the built structure and interiors and years of travel and discovery, I constantly look at what the emotions are that are created by the built space. I consider myself a student of design for my whole life and will go on that way. Some of the things that I do to support this is my podcast and then workshops and masterclasses where I teach people about trends and design thinking and tours where I take people on tour with me and we go and discover different points of architecture or interior design globally. I always think that when you're passionate about something, one of the things that you should do is is you should share it. And so creating the podcast was my way of sharing my enthusiasm and the enthusiasm of others and their passions around design with you. I hope you really enjoy it. And I ask you, would you please drop us a line? Tell us what you think. Tell us what got you excited. It's so inspiring when we get messages from our listeners that tell us about the things that shifted in their life because of who they listen to. And it gives me the inspiration to dig deeper and find more people that I can bring to your ears so that you live a better design life. My guest on Talk Design today is Peggy Dima. Peggy is a professor emeritus, which I only just learned what that really means, from Yale. And she is currently in New Zealand, which is my home country. And we've just been having a lovely chat about the landscape and where she is. She has Dima Studio, which is her practice. And in that She's a little bit of an activist in her approach to what architecture means to the world and has written on this subject. One of her books, Architecture and Capitalism, would be one that people may find really interesting. But we're going to have a discussion around her understanding beliefs and wishes for what architecture can deliver to be responsive to the climate and be responsive to community. Peggy, welcome to Talk Design. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. 
It's going to be exciting because obviously we're going to ask some very regular kind of questions, like where did you come from and those things. But I really want to dig into this area of how architecture does become responsive and how it meets everybody that lives in a house. And we won't say that all houses are designed by architects, but everybody who lives in a house or a building or leaves and goes into a city and walks around it is in touch with design and design is either good and responds well to its position as well as to the people that live in it and circulate through it and observe it, or it doesn't. It does one of those two things and it can either really engage people in a positive way or it can leave people confused, disorientated, and unsatisfied. And I think that this is the great failing of architecture in so many ways. As it grows, it takes a long time to come from zero to, say, you know, a city. It, it, it grows and grows and grows. And there's lots of lessons that are learned along the way. And architecture gets better and better and better or not. And there's the, there's the big piece. And it, it does it still keep serving its community. So, yeah, I've got I've got lots of little pieces I want to understand about this, and I'm sure you've got lots that you can tell us about it. Well, I guess I don't agree with that characterization that it's either boring and disconcerting and unsatisfying or inspiring and you know fulfilling. I I I think, like Walter Benjamin said, architecture for the most part is taken in via distraction, and people don't mm. even recognize what it is that they are looking at and why it matters. I think it takes things to be bad before they think, oh, how did this come to be? Or really good It's like, oh, why aren't more things like this? But I think the average person forgets, forgets that architecture or planning has actually <laughs> been there. You know, there's a certain sense that it just is God given. That it um, just evolves, but isn't actually well thought out or isn't thought out thought by out. anybody, even thought out by a discipline. Yeah. Yeah. That's I, I like that. I like that. Well, before we dig into that, because I want to come back to that, because that to me is so critical as yeah. to as saying how people really observe it. Tell me this first part of your journey. Why architecture? Why? Why? Was there an aunt, an uncle or a father or something like that? That meant I have to do architecture. What made you stumble into it and or what drove you into it? It's interesting. When I was at art, what we call college, but, you know, your university sure. undergraduate, I was a philosophy major, but I was also taking architecture history classes. And I just remember thinking that what I'm looking at in the architecture history classes is so interesting and so uncomplicated, whereas philosophy was just hard and never got solved and kept you up at night. And so I thought maybe I should really choose a, a discipline that feels just lighter and more satisfying in a very visceral way. Uh, and then I remember that, it, and again, this was architecture history class, the professor gave us the assignment to kind of go out in the town and just analyze a piece of architecture. And he, you know, he said just anything and, and write about what you think 
went into its design. And and I just remember whatever house I took just being fastened. It's like, why are the windows like that? You know, why is the front door where it is? And why do they, anyway, all of a sudden design just popped up, not as a style thing or as a historical thing, but as something that someone made decisions about. Yeah. So, that was yeah. It. I, I love that because often, as you say, and you said before, you know, it, people just move through it and are with it, but have no idea the thought or the planning that happened to right. create it. And I love when you look back and say, like, currently, you know, I, I live in Queensland and, you know, why is a Queensland home built the way it is? Like, yeah. why is a Queenslander, a traditional Queenslander yeah. built that way? Yeah. And I've just been in Texas and they have a thing there. I don't know whether it's just Texas. I'm sure it's not, but called dog trots, you know, a dog yeah. trot house where you kind of get yeah. two pavilions in a big hallway through the middle yeah. And that's where the dogs would sit and you would sit in the breeze and things like that. And why is the architecture, why does it respond that way to the environment? And how often is that lost right. as we go down? So right. once, you'd, once you'd gone, this is easy. No, not this is easier. This is more yeah. engaging than philosophy and maybe easier. Yeah. Yeah. What was the journey? So then I had to decide. And so then you know, I think I went through it, but maybe it was like, wow, does that mean I want to be an architecture historian? No, I don't want to li live in a library. Could I be an architect? You know, I'm fairly artistic. I'm mathematical, you know. Yeah. Uh, so I kind of said, yeah, you know, I think, I think I'm a candidate. So then I had to choose between staying in the school where I was, which was Oberlin, which did not have a architecture program, stay there, finish philosophy, and then at the master's level, go to architecture school or switch schools. And I decided to finish at Oberlin and started master's. And so then that required finding out whether you could go into a master's architecture program without a previous degree. Yeah. yeah. And I found out that you could, it was harder than applying with a portfolio and a background, but you could. And so I just on faith said that will work for me. So. <laughs> you took the leap. Yeah. Well, you're leaping away from philosophy or into architecture. Into you're architecture. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I, I was interviewing some guys from New York and one of them, Brian, he, I said to him, how did you end up in architecture? And he said, well, I was sort of at that careers thing, you know, where they said, what are you going to do next? And he went, I've got no idea. He opened the book of all the careers and he went down and A was, he was still in the A's when he discovered architecture okay. and he went, okay, that's me. I'm going to do that. It meant wow. there, it gave some, some things like you were working outside and you were doing these things or you had these, you know, whatever it was. And he said, oh, I think I could do all that. So that's what he said. I'm going to do architecture. And anyway, yeah, it, it's become what he's done. Yeah. The path that people take to such a complex discipline as architecture has always fascinates me yeah but there yeah. would have been so many easier things that you could choose to do yeah and I think it's more varied than kind of what you hear which is that as a child you were giving lego laws or uh -huh. you know oh, they weren't lego laws but were they anyway 
like you know, Meccano or Lego or something yeah. where you built um, with, yeah. And, you know, and, and, you know, you from age one, you know, couldn't be torn away from these things. I, I don't, I don't think that's really the norm. I think it is much more diverse and maybe arbitrary, like you're describing, than, than we tend to think. Yeah, and maybe, I mean, it's very easy when you talk to lots of architects or interior designers and people in the design field that everybody, not everybody, but lots of people come from different paths and they discover it through different methods. But maybe if you were talking to lawyers, you'd find the same thing. Or if you were talking to, yeah. you know, whatever. It, it, yeah. yeah, maybe the path that we all take to get to something is yeah. just a weird path. Yeah, you know, it, right. it's no straight lines. Yeah, and then this took you ultimately. You qualified. You did your masters, and then it took you to what? Well, actually, I didn't do my masters. I I moved to New York and was an intern at a place called, um, oh wow, run by Peter Eisman, the Institute for Architecture oh, okay. Studies. Yep. Yeah, and and. They helped me think about what I would do and kind of indicated that with their connections, they could help me get into the master's program at Princeton or the master's program at, at Columbia, but they highly recommended Cooper Union and Cooper Union is a five-year bachelor's of architecture program. And so I visited Cooper Union and, and really liked it. And so that's what I did. I did the, the bachelor's of architecture there. Um, cool. It's a five-year program, but because I had a previous BA, uh-huh. uh, I I could do it in in four years. So that's what it shortened it right down by a whole year. Yeah, yeah, right. But clearly, you enjoyed it and loved it. Totally, absolutely, yeah. And so, if you go, if you look back from now, how did that that doing those four years there? How did that inform the path that you ended up on and where you've ended up today? Like, what, what, yeah. where did all those seeds drop in? And as you discovered, probably who you were, as right. well as who architect, what architecture was. Right. It's a really good question because Cooper Union is very formal. You know, there, there's a real ideology of how much it matters that you understand how to arrange things, you know, at a, at a, at a, not just aesthetically satisfying level, but, you know, truly meaningful level. And so the depth with which it was thought about, I think really was important to me, but I think what set me on the path was I, I started teaching pretty quickly after I graduated Mm -hmm. and taught in a, school in Lexington, Kentucky, the University of Kentucky. And I was with people who were educated differently than me. And that was around the beginning of postmodernism. And my education was anything but postmodern. It was very European. It was very modern. But I was teaching with people who, for example, said things like, modernism is a style. And it's like, what? (laughs) Modernism is not a style. And the kinds of discussions we would have or disagreements over crits let me know that I needed to know more about why any of us say what we say when we're teaching students, you know, I, and that, 
that made me want to go back to school and get a PhD. So I really understood criticism in a way yeah, that I right. had. Yeah. So you run the best crit. <laughs> well, I don't know whether that happened, but but I I think I'm more self-conscious about pronouncements than I was before. Sorry about that. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, that's that's cool. I, it's I find that interesting as well. Like, obviously, the part of the teaching is there's so many challenge. You create challenge in so many ways, and often when I'm talking to people about you know their studies and stuff, is they when we get constrained ideas or constrained environments and these kinds of yeah I'm going to say environments the constraints is what makes us stand harder on our principles or shift or argue or learn or and in teaching this is the the beauty of it because it does put constraints in it what it it asks you to constrain or it, it yeah I wouldn't say forces but it asks you to constrain and then you know, knowing the rules and knowing how to break them is part of the innovation of being constrained. And yeah. so you must see that in so when you're teaching in so many different ways where it ignites or lets people discover their genius or discover their selves within where they where the bigger hole fits. Right. Right. Mm. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Mm. And in doing that. You must have had a lot of being teaching. You must have had a lot of, I was going to say fun. I don't know whether fun's the right word. A lot of learning. Learning's always fun. A lot of learning that would be self-reflective as well as, you know, like their growth in your own growth. Well, very much so. But but I think that my teaching kind of took two parts. I hadn't really thought about it this way. And one was teaching design and teaching studio where I would continue to teach the way that I was taught. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then teaching seminars <clears throat> was something different. And I, I think in one of the early seminars that had to do with different ways of understanding design or, you know, the, implications of design the the last week of that seminar was design in politics and i and i remember putting that down and thinking i don't know anything about this but it's in some way it was a kind of logical conclusion of of what that sequence of weeks had been and so that's that's when i started reading about the frankfurt school and post structuralism you know which is to say what is the relationship between design and culture? And through that, what's the relationship between design and politics? It was it was not something that I was educated into, but... Yeah, right. So tell me about design and politics. And just in that context, give me some sort of, I don't know, some story around it. Because I've, I've put a picture in my own head and then I want to hear... Well, I, I want to learn right. whether how close to the right picture I've got. Right. Well, if if you think about the Frankfurt School, there really are, are debating and discussing in what way art or architecture 
either creates a citizen who is able to understand how the government is diluting them, <laughs> you know, getting getting them to be consumers, kind of duping them into lowbrow stuff, or educating them to be alert and self-empowered and creative. You know, that that was kind of part of the debate between Adorno and Walter Benjamin. Adorno really kind of saw mass culture as hugely problematic and, you know, duping the masses. And Walter Benjamin was, if if art and architecture were produced in the right way, the, the user or the viewer could could really gain insights that would make them active, critical citizens as opposed to people being led by the nose by yeah, yeah. hegemonic culture. And how architecture can do that. It's interesting, yeah. as you said that piece, you know, about consumers and the, and I'm like, my mind ran to we, the government supposedly has the stewardship over the land and because it's elected by its citizens to protect that land for them them in that moment and for future generations uh, so that the, the country exists. And then it also has stewardship over services that I want to say empower or support the people and everybody would say well you know the old thing well everybody needs to go shopping so therefore we should have more shops or everybody needs I'm thinking of not services as such like hospitals or health or schooling but more like you know everybody wants recreation so we should have more parks or we we should make it more accessible for people and then to some degree, I agree with it. And then on others, I go, well, if that's why we elect them, then why are we doing such a poor job with all those things? And as you say, whether they're duping them. So if you go down to Dorno's thing of, are we being duped and fed down the mincer and coming out as hamburger? Whereas if it's Walter Benjamin's, it's like we've got the opportunity to empower them and take them in the opposite direction of that. And then to think that the, that the government actually has a hand in architecture, well, it's stupid not to think. It's stupid to realise that, that or to think that they don't. And then on the other side of it, it's how big a hand is that? And yeah, how does it inform what happens next? Yeah. Mm. I mean, just to say the example that you give is very, as a very concrete notion of, of government, you know, what, what the laws say and, you know, what the zoning is going to allow and what they're yeah. going to support. But I think that I want, I want to use the term government, or I think the Frankfurt School want to use the term government in a less concrete fashion. And it's more kind of hegemonic power of which government is certainly part of it, you know, and, and they were all mm. writing, you know, in, in, in the face of, rising totalitarianism and the rise of Nazism. And so for them, it it they really did have a fairly concrete picture of 
the government that they wanted to fight. Mm -hmm. But I think the the writing in general is more about power in whatever form, whether it's direct governmental or whether it's indirect economic or gotcha. social leaders, you know, all of that. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. yeah, I'm I'm going very much to the extreme of the government who we elect for it rather than yeah. the the sort of subcategories yeah. of that that right. that go down. So with say the Frankfurt School, who now is the you know, is the, the tallest in that space? I say the tallest, that's probably not a great thing, but who's the most influential in that space currently in the world? Like where would you see that being? Well, that's a really good question. You know, I there there's a lot of debate between whether the Frankfurt School in Germany and whether the post-structuralists in France really knew much of each other. But for someone like me who's coming to this, to both of those kind of belatedly, they work together. And so on the post-structuralist side, you know, Foucault, you know, is definitely was the figure. And then Foucault was kind of, replaced by Deleuze and Guattari, you know, and and then in my world, Deleuze and Guattari are kind of supplemented by Hart and Negri in, in Italy. So, you know, but I I think most people would think that those are still older examples mm. and that one would look to probably urbanists, you know, Mike Davis or Saskia Sassen mm-hmm. to really look closely at those relationships. And and how they how they are, I suppose, influencing our world. Yeah. And you know, I, I if I'm slow to answer that question, I mean part of Part of what's happened is that that period where everybody was reading Deleuze and Guattari and everybody was reading Empire by Hart and Negri and everyone was reading Foucault really suffered a huge backlash, you know, where that mode of thinking called critical theory was really put down by post-criticality and a movement that, that really said critical theory makes us feel guilty about what we're doing. All it does is say that we're going to be co-opted by capitalism and it's such a downer. And we now need a discourse that makes us feel good about designing and, and really puts out there in the world how important design is. And let's, let's stop with this downer critical theory and do something Uh else. So it's, it's only recently that there has been a resurgence of, you know, thinking again about how we in the design fields might be more implicated in a consumerist culture that works for capitalists and doesn't work for society. (laughs) Right. Uh, Well, I suppose because our, let's go back to the government, they're organized in a capitalist nature. You know, like it's uh, our fundamental economic systems are based on capitalism and more and more and more, you know, the production of more 
of everything because it's a model that has to be fed. Yeah. And it's it's hard to separate those two when you do that because the environment is capitalist. And I've just been having this interesting conversation with friends. I was traveling in the US with different architects and visiting different architects and not just architects, but all kinds of people. And my, you know, take a country like Germany versus, say, Australia or New Zealand or the US and even England. Take a country like Germany where there's very little capital growth in housing. Like you don't, people don't use it as a investment vehicle. The common person, I say the common person, you know, the it's not seen as an investment vehicle to carry them forward in their wealth for their own personal wealth to build and flip out, you know, like flip yeah. houses to use real estate as this thing. And so you suddenly get a very stabilized and, you know, just stabilized marketplace of housing. And yeah. if you go back to what human needs are, you know, shelters a human need and you go, well, they've ticked that box to a large degree that shelter is available for yeah. everybody. And yeah. it's not a thing where we invest in it and flip it, turn it over, do all these things to to grow our personal wealth. Right. And yet, you know, in the US, I was I was asking a friend in the US about so when somebody comes to your studio and they say that they want this kind of house, how do you know whether it's going to be their their, their budget? constraints against their size of home and he said to me he said well most people know that they want a x number square foot house and I said how would they know and uh, because that conversation happens here as well but not as quite as defined as he saw it and he said oh well they've been to somebody else's house they've asked them well how many square feet is this house and you know they go oh well it's a thousand square foot whatever the figure is it's a you know eleven hundred square foot house or it's a you know eleven thousand square foot home or whatever it is, and they go, oh, we could imagine ourselves living in this, but it's a dinner table conversation. No wonder in places like Germany whether it is because nobody's looking at it as a well not nobody, but it it's less people are looking at it as a financial vehicle to carry them to somewhere, and that means that we gain if people are housed, one of their human needs is secured it's uh, they know it's secured and so yeah. therefore they they play at a different level of relaxation self-relaxation it's yeah. there it's like when people pay off their their loans or their mortgage and they're mortgage free there's a yeah. different sense in their physicality and their mental state of right. security right. there's nobody can take it away from me now it right. is kind of the feeling yeah yeah it's not it's not a an aspect of real estate speculation, you know, yeah. and in the US it is. And Australia and New Zealand and England. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. yeah. It, and that changes, A, the cost of it, but also the availability of it. And Absolutely. You know, and, and, and everybody who's designing or having an architect design a new house is thinking about the resale value. You're not thinking about or you are not <laughs> primarily thinking about what is unusual about me and how can I make this special? It's always 
modified by, oh, but if it's too particular to me, somebody else won't want somebody it. Somebody else won't like it. And so you're kind of going for generic all the time, which is a problem. Which, well, this is something that fascinates me because uh, like, I will have a, a conversation with a client and that conversation might go something like, so I want you to look five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years into the future and tell me where you see yourself in each of these stages and how that relates to this poem that we may be going to do something with. And it's a very early question that I have. And just the other day, I'm talking to some clients and they said, we think that it's probably about seven to 10 years. And the land that they are on is a big piece of land. And they said, because this land will be ripe for development and we will sell it off and go bush somewhere. And I said, so if we're talking seven years and you're talking about putting in a horse arena and a stables, I said, you know, you might spend $80,000 on your horse arena because you're going to need a fair bit of retaining and stuff. And then you're going to spend a whole lot of money on some stables. The developer isn't going to be interested in your horse arena or stables, but you will have spent the money how much how much time and effort do you want to put into that and how much return on that investment will you get? Not in dollar sense, but in life sense. Yeah. yeah. If you have it or don't have it, because you're still going to have to fund it and you're counting on at the end of it, that you'll get another million or so dollars for your property, but you will have funded that all that way. Right. Is it, you know, just getting down to, is it, is it where the money, where you should spend your money? Yeah. And I yeah. don't I don't care where they spend their money. I care yeah. about whether they've thought about where they spend their money. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and you know, and, and the ideal thing is is if he could say to you, for the seven years of my life, it makes me happy. This this is what I want to do. And I'm not I'm not thinking of it in terms of the dollar signs for the future, but yeah. I will go into the bush a happy person because I did this thing that I wanted. Yes. And my joy and happiness will have spread through the people around me and (laughs) the the things that I do. And therefore everybody will gain from this better space. Exactly. Exactly. And that the, and that the kids surprisingly might want to, you know, take over the property and they didn't think that they liked horses, but given that they have an arena yeah, no, all of that. And, and yeah, and it never goes to a developer or it, it goes to somebody else who's equally as passionate about that yeah. and sees right. this opportunity. I I have this thing with this kind of conversation where you as you said, people are not necessarily thinking about themselves in it, they're thinking about their wallet in it. They are thinking of themselves, of course, but they're thinking of the investment piece. You know, well, what will it be worth when it's done? And will I have overcapitalized or undercapitalized on this property as well? Nobody really considers the undercapitalization so much, but they do consider they've spent too much to get what they want. Yeah. Yeah. I mean the undercapitalization, you know, links directly to the tiny house movement, which is, you know, a certain awareness that the house that I'm having dinner in with my friend and they say, yes, it's, you know, it's 6,000 square feet. Mm-hmm. It's something, okay, you know, when, when I buy that property, I'm going to get 6,000 square feet because I want to 
you know, keep up with the Joneses that they think, wow, I don't want to worry about six bedrooms, you know? Yeah. And I, and I can see that I kind of would be happy with two, you know, I, and that they begin to think about, yeah, that advantage <laughs> under, under financing. Yes. Um, yeah. expecting but but then the fair part of them in a, in a marketplace like we have, the fair part of them is, is the FOMO, what they're going to miss out on if yeah. they don't do it to the size that the people, the Joneses do. Well, just to say, I mean, this is where I think part of what the Frankfurt School teaches us, you know, and, and part of what they teach us is the work of ideology, you know, capitalist ideology. You know, they would say that ideology has made you insecure about that, that naturally we we would feel that we didn't have to worry about what we're missing out on. You know, we we could be more in touch with our own needs and our desires that aren't manipulated by what we're told we should worry about and what we're told we should desire and what we're quote unquote need. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I find this, it, it's the response to actual human need versus the response to the environment of the, 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 the financial environment. Right. And, you know, people, I think, I think that maybe with our economies and things, you know, Australia and New Zealand, not New Zealand, but Australia and America build the biggest houses in the world. You know, we're, they're known for the biggest. And we go through something like the COVID pandemic and everybody realises how important their garden is. Uh-huh. And yet we still build the biggest houses in the world I'm going so and the cost of building doubles in that time and we look and we go well so build half the space yeah and, and people <laughs> and have a bigger garden <laughs> yeah. because the garden's actually the piece that's going to feed your soul not this is only my thing thoughts but the garden's the piece that will feed your soul and make sure that the house has the connection with that exactly even if you don't walk into it even exactly. if you just view it. Yeah, I completely, I completely agree. It, it, yeah. it, it, it's such a conundrum. Yeah, yeah. And and we should all have the courage to re- recognize feelings like that <laughs> and do something different than our neighbors. If our neighbors are more traditional or, you know, go by the same kind mm. of assessment of what's worthwhile and what will make you happy. Yeah. I, I so, yeah. So like I'm just working on a project where I said, well, for your actual needs, you don't need this much space. In fact, this much space that you've currently got, and it's going to be knocked over. And there's <laughs> a few reasons for that because it's, anyway, we won't go into that, but it will be knocked over and then they'll build again. This much space that you've currently got is way more than, you actually find it awkward because there's too much. Yeah. So then what would we rationalize that to? And one of the comments was, well, every other house in this area is built to the margins. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's the real estate market tell, telling you what you have to do. Yeah. Build it to the margins. And, and I'm like, wow, that's, that's not necessarily. <laughs> A mandate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is. Something that you said also 
previously was about you know, teaching design in studio. And I was listening to the second studio pod, which is a podcast I listened to. And the guys were talking about the fact there was a question around whether studio is just too loose and how do you learn from it? Because there's not enough parameters in it. And I I made the comment that it's our responsibility to work, to find our parameters and our guidelines. It's not just the responsibility of the the government to supply those to us. I'd love to your thoughts on whether studio, you know, as a as a discipline when you're learning it or teaching it, is could ever be too loose. It's it's interesting. I think two things. I was always interested in, when teaching studio to make sure that the student had a position about the program we were high, you know, we were giving them. Let's say you're giving them a library and that they shouldn't take the library and the square footages, you know, for offices and reading space, whatever. They shouldn't take that. They should have a concept about what a library is and what its type is and what is useful and how 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 would the that neighborhood use it or 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 even the libraries are old fashioned and the Starbucks is a better library. I know it it I I it, yeah. it would be that they just had to have a position that would make their take on this particular. And so that's different than what you're saying about parameters, but it it in some way did mean that they should set up their own kind of parameters about what they wanted to get out of it. But the other thing that it makes me think about is I I I think more and more, and it wasn't like I always taught studio this way, that the real world gives us really interesting problems. And so for us to give the students made up things, you know, like do a, a institute that's studying how to live on Mars, you know, it's like, ah, you know, be, because um, it's more like, how do we in, in a certain neighborhood, in a certain city, get more affordable housing? And then we kind of learn about all the rules and, you know, that are saying not, not zoned here or all yes. the, you know, not in my backyard community things, you know, I, so again, that's, that's slightly different than what you're saying about parameters, but I, but I do think that thinking hard about what your role is when you, as a student, as you respond to a brief is, is a, a foreground of a commitment that you're making mm. to society. You know, like when you get out after graduating, you you already have developed a position about what you want your skills to do. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, yeah. People tend to have a vision of what they see that next, probably they see it as their life, but it's probably a five or a 10 year period that, starts to inform the direction they run in right Mm. yeah yeah i i i've always been a person who myself is quite happy to create my own boundaries i remember i remember (laughs) talking just before this and i remember the first time 
I ever had my own office in a company. And so I was working in a clothing company and I was leading the pack of these people. My, my, I had all these eight employees or something in there. So I had eight team members and I had my own separated office. I'd never worked in this situation before. And I remember closing the door and having a little laugh to myself going, what do I do now? What what <laughs> happens next? Yeah. And then I thought, okay, so I'd done an induction in the company and things like that. And I, I, I said, okay, let's go through all the ranges that we have currently that are currently valid and you know, what's happening. And I said, I want to see the margins on everything. I want to see the sales figures on all the things that are happening right now, just to get my head around it. So I wanted some analytics and then I wanted to get a feel for it. And then there was ranges that were in development, but I'm stepping in and they, they were already well underway. And I've, I've done, you know, like, I've been in the industry a long time, but I've done a couple of weeks or maybe a week of this pondering in my own office and trying to gain some stuff. And I'm like, goodness, I'm actually going to have to make the decision. Yeah. And so then it was like I went to my analytics and went, okay, where's all my margins? What, What are we going to do? How much does this fit in our overall budget for the year what do we have to turn over what's our biggest selling things and just went to all the structural side of it and then went do I believe these garments can do this that's interesting and and the same with architecture though well the same and more so I mean again you know the good news is that you had analytics that made you have a clearer framework about your your, your choices but with fashion you really, except for the economic side, could do anything. Yeah. There is, it's just not the case in architecture. And no, I think it's it, really, it, really too bad that we tend to teach architecture as if it's like fashion, where just, you know, think about this and break boundaries and, you know, you're you're being original and you're, yeah, you might be looking at Frank Gehry or you might be looking at Harrison yeah. Demuren or whatever, but but move beyond that and just do what you want. Be the genius, you know, the creative is like, wow, architecture is just not like that. It is too expensive and too public, you know. And it it, it stays, <laughs> it stays. You can do something in fashion and it's gone. And if it's, if it's fashionable, it's gone in like six, oh, six months max. <laughs> Most people could do all their shopping on the sales racks and still have stuff that they would, if they bought it at full price, they could buy it at half price on the sales racks and it would still be in fashion, you know, 12 months later. If they bought it at full price, it'd still be in their wardrobe. And yeah, yet yeah. they go, oh, I'm not buying it on sale. I need the latest stuff. With yeah. architecture, the thing's going to sit there. Not only is it going to sit there, it's going to horrifically change the piece of land that it touches forever. Yeah. yeah. And it's going to alter the environment that's around it forever. The wind yeah. is going to change. Yep. The if, it, the light's going to change. Everything is going to change because of that structure. Yeah. Now, it's you can take thing. a blouse or a sweater on and off yeah. and you can play with it. But as you say, this is a much bigger, heavier commitment. Yeah. yeah. And this is, yeah, like that's 
the other day somebody said to me, so in your processes or in the process of this, what what happens? And I said, well, the first thing is, is the site. I said, yeah. the site's going to tell us its story long before we hear your story. Yeah, We want to then, hear, once we understand the site, hear your story of, what, of the site to you. Right. And then your story of your life of what that site needs to do for you. Because right. we're about to make a change to it that we can't reverse. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. It, 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 I, this kind of thinking is the thinking that in, it inspires me. And then I go, to what degree do we need to understand the site? I, you know, it's, it's a very, very good question. And we need to understand this site profoundly. So I really appreciate you bringing it up. And, but part of that is the context, which is, it's not just the boundary around this property that you're, that you're getting, but is what's neighboring it and, and how does it work with, you know, pedestrian traffic and what they see and people are looking at it and, you know, the, neighborhood is all four stories and you're not going to do 10 stories. I mean, all, all of those things that are physical context, social context, cultural context. But besides that, there is, I think, more and more awareness that the site has profound history, whether it's, you know, how colonization has Mm -hmm. usurped property that used to function in a different way for indigenous people or whether the site you know used to have a river run through it and now it's covered over but it's going to have water problems you know when, when yeah 100 percent. All, all those different things you know that the that the site has physical history has cultural history has you know political history and and that's what you want to respect yeah and, and yeah respect with understanding and, you know, like a question the other day somebody gave me was, well, how much time do you spend on regenerative, you know, thought when you're designing something for the land? And I'm like, well, we think about it a lot. However, we can't necessarily change what's been before us. We may be able to work with what's been left and mm like we were talking earlier about, you know, planting wildlife corridors and things like this, we can never go back to what it was, but we can take it to what it can be. And that's always a question of what could it be? And then the economics of that are always the question that unravel it to where where the person wants to split their pot of gold, you know, how it wants to be spent. Right. Yeah, it is it is true that you can maybe make a choice about how you occupy your site and what you plant and what you build that can be a provocation for your neighbors to do something similar. Let's say you're giving half yes. of the property over to to wildlife. Uh, um, wildlife, yeah. And you do it in such a way that your neighbors benefit from looking at that as opposed to your big house and and that they recognize that it's a gift that they too could could pass on to other people. Anyway, yeah, you're you're doing a a initial proposition that could, mm. could mm. I just was at a lecture that Frank Harmon gave 
and I don't know whether you know Frank Harmon, but anyways, from in America, and he his lecture was on the story and the written words as opposed to the buildings and mm. and how the story got told mm. and how it embraced the land etc cetera, etc cetera. and it yeah. was fascinating mm. and he was saying you know if it doesn't get written it only gets built and if it only gets built then it only gets seen by those people that go there or the f- photographs of it where if, when it's written it actually gets to go and infiltrate minds everywhere. Yeah, no, that's interesting. Which, you know, in in the crudest possible way to think about that is how media might pick up on covering your house where you've given half of it over to reforestation or whatever, because no one's reading our brief, you know, it, it, yes. the, the, writ, the written stuff for the most part is controlled by by media and one media is not doing a very interesting job about covering architecture and and two those of us who are being published i don't think are doing a very good job of, about explaining these deeper things as opposed to you know their stylistic choices or the or the things that are more uh, trivial well, i was about to say more trivial but driven the public drive them and i i have this another burning the thing that comes up for me so often is is how come I can take a piece of architecture that say is in Wyoming and I could put that here in Australia or I could put it where you are in New Zealand and I could put that in somewhere in Europe and what happened to the localism and the 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 of the place architecture somebody sees something on Pinterest or on Instagram or wherever they view their media and they go, well, I want that here. And you go, well, yes. How does that suit this piece? And we've got this homogenization of, and the same happened with clothing design and a lot of design. The world became very small, but then there's this homogenization. And once we get to that, everybody gets bored with it and then they want to stand out in a new way. Right. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I I think a lot of that, which is really unfortunate, is understanding that that thing you saw on Pinterest or you know that style house is a symbol of something. It's a symbol of the cultural class that you identify with. Mm-hmm. You know, by choosing that, I'm showing that I'm avant-garde, or by choosing that, I'm showing that I understand old world heritage and you yeah. know no, I'm not aristocratic you know I want to yeah. look aristocratic you know they're they're symbols as much as actual personal choices yes yeah well it's so true it's like fitting with your tribe or fitting with who you feel right. you need to belong to at that stage in your life right you only get that perspective as you get older I suppose yes although you know part of my work now is to rethink how it is that we teach so that we could be teaching that kind of thinking to to students so they don't have to wait until they're 60 to they don't have to learn their own from their own path right Right. (laughs) that's the idea of education isn't it yeah yeah is is how do we put that forward I've got a question for you which I know you were just saying to me you designed a batch for somebody in New Zealand and for those of you don't 
are listening who don't know what a batch is, it's spelt B-A-C-H, and there's no T in it. And just look it up, Google it, and find out a New Zealand batch. You'll get a bit of an idea of what a batch traditionally is and what a batch has become. Tell me about designing this because it was on acreage, it was on large acreage property. Tell me about designing it and taking all your knowledge that you've gained and been privy to and putting it into this practice of creating this batch. I'm not I'm not sure that designing this batch exemplifies my hopes for architecture in any particular way. You know, I I I think there's a certain directness and simplicity that is my particular style choice, you know, yep. and my client agreed with it. I I I feel like working with her having come through a longer career, I'm much more responsive to what the client wants as opposed to let me tell you client how it has to be <laughs> why it should be this way and it's much more fun and it actually gets a better product but i feel like the design that i am living in here in new zealand that i yep. that i did in this property maybe is more exemplifies more my <laughs> position about architecture so um, this is being your own place yeah yeah cool and it's a it's a one bedroom, even one bedroom. It's more like a studio. There's really just a partial division that divides the living and the dining and the kitchen from, from the bedroom. It's just one big space because it's really all I could afford. And so affordability is you know written right into of this. Of course. Yeah, I um, love that. And it, I also very much wanted this to look like a farm building and uh-huh. not a home because I'm in farmland. And so this is corrugated iron and you know it's 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 modest and and then because I also want people to come and visit I I've built a a long porch that I can put tents on and so I because otherwise you can't put tents on my property it's too rolling and so I really designed that porch around the tents that that I I knew I wanted to buy um, they're kind of like Yosemite tents, which is you stand yes. up. And yes, dig. yeah, I know um, Yosemite tent I've been. Yeah, and yeah. so it's basically, it it makes what is basically a one bedroom house into a four bedroom house because there's space for for three tents. I love so that, I and so they come and go as required. Exactly. That, yeah, beautiful. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> but you know the other thing that that I'm believe in and kind of proud of here is I really believe that the kind of traditional antagonism between architects and contractors doesn't need to be the case and that somehow standard contracts make us enemies of each other Uh, and so I, I, I did this with time and materials and I didn't ask my contractor to put in a bid because I wanted to be able to very easily say, you know what, made a mistake here, redo it without him saying, oh my God, you know, I didn't know. Now there's to- a variation and we're going to do this and that. And-, and I felt like it put us in a positive relationship with each other. Mm-hmm. And it was just a fabulous experience. I think we we went into it knowing that we both wanted to make the best possible 
product and that so we could talk about what it what it meant to do that. The contractor joined you in the essentially in being able to express your plan, but with their creativity and knowledge. I think that I'm with you. I think that the most power comes from working with great contractors because up until then it's drawings and a great idea and, you know, and maybe a budget breakdown and things. But at the end of the day, it's only something of, of true value once it's actually built. Yeah. And our aim should always be that everything is built because that's why we, we either do it for ourselves or get employed at the start is somebody comes with the outcome in mind, but it yeah. isn't just a set of drawings and a wild idea. It's a, it's actually something physical that remains. Right. Go. Well, just to say, you know, just as part of the details of that, story because I wasn't going to be here for a good portion of while it was being done and it had to kind of be coordinated with the landscape I interviewed somebody who could be the manager of the whole thing and kind of be my eyes and it was clear it was pretty quickly clear that he was of the traditional variety that I did not want to encourage which is that he would beat down my contractor you know and he would tell the contractor how to do things you know and and budget things for me and I just thought ah I don't need this and he's just he's making a problem where there isn't one and he's going to get in the way and so I didn't do that (laughs) well that's a really interesting point I think this is you know a great point as to a a team needs to be a team and They need to be able to be honest and they need to be able to be transparent for, in this case, we'll call you the client, for you to win. Yeah. And it's it's got to be transparent, I think, and authentic on all parts. Yeah. And for anybody who's hiring, you know, a, an architect, I would say, well, you need to dig deep into who the team is that makes not just not just with the architect, but or, right. or any designer, you need to dig into the team that's going to get it to the end, right. and what those relationships will be. Because I've got a my woo woo kind of belief area, which is is that everything carries embodied energy, and if there's a lot of dissatisfaction around something, there's a reason for that. And we need to be constantly aware of that energy because that energy will be embodied in the structure as well. I completely agree. You know, and if you've had a really unpleasant time as a client with your architect or your builder, even if it ended up being something you want, you you see those places mm-hmm. where you had the arguments <laughs> about or whatever, and and you're not happy. And it's like, oh, who... Who wants that kind of embodied yeah, energy like and that yeah, carries it? Yeah, no. I've got a last question for you. And I asked this one of quite a few people. So it is tricky, but I think you'll get it. <laughs> it's your question and there's no wrong answers. If you were to be able to do one last thing, one last project, there is nothing else that you can do. This is it. You've got to hang up your pencil. You There's no more what would it be 
And it, it doesn't have to be a built structure. It could be a book. It could be anything. What is that one last project that is the final full stop on your legacy that you get to produce? It would be creating a firm that's worker owned. I mean, which would be doable. I don't have enough work to do that. And I don't, I don't have people working for me, but, but I, I really think the model for an architecture firm would be to have it be worker owned. And so if, if I had that firm that was worker owned, I would, I would hope that it would infect all of my friends' firms. It's like, wow, those worker owners, you know, that, you know, whatever you would call it, seem to be producing excellent work and and attracting employees who want to make that uh, firm grow and be more powerful and in that being more powerful, be able to be pickier about the jobs that they take or or actually could begin to create, discover their own projects so they're not waiting for a client to to come to them. Oh, I love it. I love this. I love it. I think that's a... Like as a vision, as we, you know, move forward, it gives a voice to, and, and I think in quite a few architectural practices and certainly, you know, other professional practices, there are quite a few what you would call partnerships and stuff, but that doesn't necessarily spread to worker-owned. And yeah. those who can step up to that, would and those who can't won't and then everything again the energy that goes with that shifts forward with it and but you still got to have leadership and vision and values and those got to be really clear to get to that point yeah they have to be clear and they have to be shared you wouldn't have that's that's part of it is you you wouldn't have a a five-year plan or a 10-year plan that wasn't agreed on by everybody yeah. and everybody would know exactly why they're doing the work that they're doing for that for that job or that client yeah have you ever read Yvonne Sherrard's book I let my people let my people go surfing so Yvonne Sherrard from Patagonia oh he has a fascinating book called let my people go surfing and it is a, not a, it, it has values along the worker own kind of values he talks about if we're not living and we're just working, how both are super important to the outcomes of the firm and what we're doing in life and how we're doing things. And we need to balance those in business and in life. And it's a it's a fascinating book, yes, but you probably you would probably enjoy it. Yvonne yeah, Schrad. Totally. Yeah, he those kind of things well Peggy what an absolute fabulous conversation I have thoroughly enjoyed it I've got more than two pages of notes Um, (laughs) and those are all just for me (laughs) I've got lots of little pieces and I, I would love to have a further conversation with you on more of these subjects because I think that we just scraped along the top of what's really available and where your thinking goes I think it's it's fascinating and it is so in line with my thoughts and values on what the world needs now 
and yeah. did need needed previously as well and will need in the future. But it's a very conscious type conversation around how architecture is responding to that and how it's such a deliberate practice of and and it changes our landscapes permanently. Yeah. So where's the responsibility in that? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, for all those reasons, I really enjoyed talking to you. <laughs> yeah, me too. Thank you so much. Go and have a wonderful day. Okay. You too. And we will talk soon. Okay. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Richard's Magic Arrows is brought to you by the Architect Marketing Institute. Clean, simple, sugar-free magic arrows that hit the mark for fast results. Let's fire a magic arrow into this week's problem. Now, I know feed pressure is one of the biggest things facing designers. It doesn't matter what level you're at. There is no one golden bullet for it. Uh, if it was, it was probably select the right type of clients. But if you're in a situation where you're being pressured on fees, I'm going to give you a way of dealing with it. And it's by asking say three questions and this is called takeaway selling so this is where you kind of offer something up and then you take it away and see if they follow you it's almost like imagine if you had some hot ch chocolate cookies and you had a plate full of them you put them in front of them, someone and then they went to reach out and then you you pulled it away and you see if they get up and follow you it's that type of thing so this is called takeaway selling so the first question you ask you say well why don't you just leave the situation as it is why why make the change that's an unusual thing for a designer to say. Well, why not just leave it as it is? And see how they answer. And then you might say, well, why did you want to speak to me? Why did you not get someone else? And see if they follow you. See if they answer properly. And the third question would be, well, why not do it later? Now, by asking these negative questions, you're going to get a lot more information out of someone than by trying to convince them to do it. Because by pulling the plate of hot cookies away, they're either going to react or they're not. And if they do react and give you answers and explain why it's important, then what they're doing is telling you how important something is. Now, while these magic arrows are great for fast results, when you're ready to run better quality projects from clients who value great design and are prepared to pay great fees, I've got a special training just for you. Go to archmarketing.org forward slash talk design. Take your magic arrow and fire at will.